I consider it an achievement that if I'm ever blessed to have children someday, they're going to be able to trace back their ancestors 300 years. They're going to be able to call their names out, even if they've never seen their face before. And that as an African-American woman who is a descendant of enslaved black Africans, who's the descendant of free people of color, who's the descendant of slave masters, that's a victory for me. Six. Squish. Uh-uh. Cicero. Lip shits. Doo-doo-doo. <laughs> now, the two merry hosts of the feminist present in their edition of the Cell Block Tangle for no reason that we will no acknowledge. No reason whatsoever. I've just been running around my house yelling the dirty bum, 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 bum. Did I study musical theater as a youth? Yes, I did. I did not, but I wanted to. <laughs> But it would have been too revealing. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, welcome to the second season of The Feminist Presence. Season two. The podcast where we use the gift of feminism to figure out what is going on right now, which has implausibly enough gotten harder in the meantime. A little more challenging than even where we left off. What even wow. is going on? Did you play the game this morning of looking outside and being like, California, shroud of the skies, smoke or fog? I did, but I knew it was fog. I saw it rolling in yesterday. So um... He says smarmily. Professor Dobb knew it was No, I, like, I have a dog. I walk with a dog. <laughs> I, I tend to know where things stand with the fog. You're not doing any better making yourself sound like a know-it-all. What have people missed, Adrian, since they last heard our dulcet tones? Our reality of recording this is obviously totally different from probably most listeners experience of this for the two of us being like this together has been a while but i think that in terms of our release schedule it's really not but just know that for me and laura emotionally this is kind of a big deal this is a big deal it's been weeks it's been weeks it's been weeks Ruth Bader Ginsburg has, you know, departed this earthly realm since last we talked. But not without leaving one last legacy, Ugh. the curse from beyond the grave to end all curses from beyond the grave. Don't fuck with that woman. Like, I, I don't know who thought it was yeah. a good idea to fuck with a woman's dying yeah, wishes. Yeah. I mean, like, it's just not a good plan. A woman that powerful? Like, are you kidding? Like, that just doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. And so now we're back from outer space. We're somewhere, yeah. you know, back, I think is like maybe overstating the case. We are once again on the airwaves. So who are we talking to today? So today we're talking to Morgan Jerkins, who is the author of This Will Be My Undoing and Wandering in Strange Lands, which is a book that we're going to be talking to her about. I think you'll be able to tell in the interview, we're pretty excited. We're pretty excited. Uh, we're pretty stoked. My volume goes up about a thousand decibels. We really like this book and we really like Morgan's work in general. I think that that means we need to do a little contextualizing here because... Mm -hmm. uh, we came to it as fans, you know, and we're like, we're gonna, on page 30. Sometimes Adrian and I are so excited. We don't do any context. On any page episode. 35, you say, but like, and what happened to them afterwards? It's like, well, this is not super informative for people. Maybe we should say a little bit about this book, which is, it's remarkable. But at the same time, you'll get the rules of it fairly quickly, right? I'm really proud of myself for not having invoked this comparison in the episode and i know that you hate this comparison that every young essayist gets this comparison thrown at her but i do actually think it kind of makes sense here in my defense i hope you're gonna say joan didion i'm gonna say joan didion i'm yeah, sorry yeah it's a, okay go i'll let you finish a little bit the way that joan didion in south and west kind of talks about sort of getting at some part of america by exploring space and memory this book tries to do that with the Great Migration. So Morgan Jerkins grew up in New Jersey and, as she calls herself in the subtitle, a daughter of the Great Migration. And she writes extensively about, not just about her family history, 
but about the process of recovering that, what's involved in recovering that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And also, this is where the Vivian comparison comes in for me. And again, I apologize. I know, I know, I know. I shouldn't, but... There is a kind of thing here where Didion's travel writing is all about the ease of access. Mm -hmm. It's all about like her sort of peripatetic and kind of like, like almost, you know, she can waltz in anywhere. I felt Morgan's book was a lot about the fact that that's not something that was available to African-Americans for a long time and still really isn't Mm -hmm. available Mm -hmm. now. Right. And so that it's kind of an exploration of the space that isn't neutrally open to you the way it would be to a white American like Joan Didion. But it is about retrieving kind of a space that used to belong to your family, but that you couldn't sort of leave the way Americans leave or white Americans leave spaces. Right. Mm -hmm. To commute, to move up in the world or whatever. You could only migrate. You could only leave it behind for good. And Morgan is sort of trying to undo that. She describes it as kind of an amnesis. Right. It's like a reverse amnesia. She's trying to sort of remember what her family forgot and Mm -hmm, thought that mm -hmm. that makes it such an extremely interesting project. Yeah, absolutely. And I think to my mind, the dual project is remembering both what her family forgot and what history tends to forget, right? right? Because when researchers go on these kinds of journeys, what they're reliant upon is documents and the documentation of black life in America has been, let's call it erratic at best. I'm just paraphrasing a little bit from the jacket copy on the book. So folks know what we're talking about here. It reads between 1916 and 1970. Six million Black Americans left their rural homes in the South for jobs in cities in the Northwest and Midwest in a movement known as the Great Migration. But while this event transformed the landscape of America and provided Black people with new economic opportunities, it also disconnected them from their roots, their land, and their sense of identity. In this fascinating and deeply personal exploration, Morgan Jerkins recreates her ancestors' journeys across America following their migratory routes from Georgia and South Carolina to Louisiana, Oklahoma, and California. And what Morgan does in a way that I find so bold and interesting with this book is she builds an autobiographical map of the U.S., I think. You know, she traces one parent's roots down to South Carolina, one parent's roots down to Louisiana. She deeply investigates Black life and identity in both of those places. Then she goes to Oklahoma and investigates the sort of overlap of Black life and history with Native life and history. And then she goes to California and drops like a late Act 3 bomb that she was a child star at one point, which was a piece of gossip I was very interested in learning. Did not know that. So she calls it wandering, but it's a very purposeful step she takes throughout the U.S. And we learn so much along the way. And we were so stoked to talk to her about that. Yeah. I have to say that I find it also really fascinating that I asked her about travel memoirs in our conversation. There is something about mobility and black mobility mm-hmm. that, of course, in, on everyone's mind right now. Also, you know, with mm-hmm. just the question of what does it mean to be in spaces that are new to you as a black body in this country? Right. How dangerous can it get? I, I often have to think back to and I should I should forewarn our listeners. This is going to be a theme for me this season. I'm thinking a lot about Lovecraft Country on HBO right mm-hmm. now, which is all about the question of what's involved in having to make certain calculations as you traverse Mm -hmm. space. And I think that there's an interesting way in which Morgan both reflects on what migration meant to her family, but also what enables her to reverse that to some extent, to trace these steps now in ways that white Americans have done with obvious ease and that African-Americans were often prevented from. Are still prevented from, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Yes, yes. Right, except that she'll discuss that there were moments when she felt extremely unsafe, Mm -hmm. but it is now possible. It just takes a damn lot of courage. Yes to all of that. And I also think some of my favorite moments of the book were when she found surprising allies who helped keep her safe, you know, and who were deeply invested in her safety and had a lot of empathy for her experience and for, like, the sort of ethical purpose of her journey. So... 
just so we don't suggest that this is a book that is, you know, uniformly depressing or filled with violence. I think it's it's filled with an incredible amount of hope and curiosity. You know, like there's just this burning intellectual curiosity that pervades the whole story. Yeah. And I can only imagine how much work it must have been to do all of this travel and organize all of this research. So yeah. I have to imagine that that flame of curiosity and purpose like had to burn pretty bright to make it all the way through this research. And I guess the last thing I want to say is that this book captures sort of one of my favorite modes of nonfiction, which is the blending of autobiography and personal essay with research critical analysis. And I think Morgan is really deft, much like many of the authors that she mentions, like Rachel Kadzigansa is one who's coming to mind for me now. I think Morgan is incredibly deft at blending those techniques. Yeah, we should say that you're going to learn a lot in this book. You're going to learn a lot, not just about Morgan Jerkins, but about, about the Great Migration and about American history and about race in America. About the many shades of Black identity and how American Blackness is very much not a monolith. So just to remind folks, the book is Wandering in Strange Lands, A Daughter of the Great Migration Reclaims Her Roots. We are speaking with its author, Morgan Jerkins, today. We hope you will tune in for the rest of The Feminist Present Season 2. We have some pretty exciting shit coming up. Pretty exciting. Pretty exciting. Maybe a little more musical theater. Who knows what election season will bring. Yeah. So without further ado... I'm Laura. He's Adrian. We're going to talk to Morgan. We hope you enjoy it and uh, keep tuning in. Keep tuning in. Keep tuning in. (laughs) She says in Minnesotan. I'm so excited to talk to you. I feel like I've spent so much time with you in this book. I mean, that nonfiction has that quality of like really bringing in an intimacy. So I guess just because you were talking to your family members before we got on this call, like everybody's good. Like Auntie Charlene is good. Your parents, the Regis side is good. The Jerkin side is good. Everybody's good. Thanks for asking. (laughs) I guess, I mean, I just wanted our listeners to know that like I got very attached to your family members through the experience of this memoir. So we wanted to double check. One of the first questions I wanted to ask is, this is a book that's about ethnography. It's a book that's about ancestry. And it's a book that to me seems in direct conversation with several texts. But I wanted to hear you speak in your own words about what you see the ancestors or the foremothers to this book as. Oh, man, I love this question. I mean, I would think of like Zora Neale Hurston's entire body of work, you know, mules and men, even as recently as the posthumous work Barracoon, which funny enough, one of my editors for Wandering in Strange Lands, her name is Amber Oliver. She actually worked on that book. So it definitely, no yeah, she actually oh, worked wow. on that book. So oh, it definitely wow. felt like a full circle moment. I think of Isabel Wilkerson's The Wound of Other Sons as a precursor. Oh man. It's interesting because I love to draw inspiration from a melange of different artistic mediums. So I think about Daughters of the Dust by Julie Dash, you know, the movie, that movie, Eve's Bayou, directed by Cassie Lemons. I think about things like that Mm -hmm. in conjunction with texts that have been inspirations for me. Yeah. 
For sure. Isabel Wilkerson was the one that came most immediately to mind, like as soon as I like put one finger on the book. But Zora yeah. Neale, right. I was like, she's she's thinking about Zora too. For sure. Obviously, you're yeah, thinking about Zora. Yeah. yeah. Although it's, yeah, it's really interesting, right? On the one hand, I think I also sense that ancestry. But at the same time, it's so interesting because Wilkerson is about migration. And what you also kind of celebrate, though, is I don't want to say tourism, but it's also mm-hmm. just travel, right? Like it is about the migrations of your family, but it is also about your ability to move to track back and i like the ways in which you often sort of tell us the minutia of like trying to find like you know a lift on a barrier island or whatever right like there is also kind of just like a travel narrative here Mm -hmm. right and you know what's interesting or something that has been a humbling experience for me is that you know i'm an african-american and you know nowadays you know you have a lot of african-americans who say like uh black people aren't a monolith and and it's true, right? But you definitely get a different dimension of that when you travel and you right. realize how vast the country is. And the reason why I wanted to detail the minutiae, as you said, about my traveling was because I didn't know where the hell I was at. I didn't know where I was. And I mean, but prior to me going to the low country, for example, I had a woman who was born and raised there that said, it's going to be nothing like you ever seen before. Now, whether mm. she said it as an admonition or not, I mean, she was right. I was not used to the flora and fauna. I wasn't used to the type of danger. I wasn't used to that. what was at stake in these communities before. It's one thing to read it. It's another thing to be on the soil yeah. in that key and hear it. And also like, you know, I'm African-American, but I don't know everything about what other African-Americans are like either. And so I wanted people to understand that. And I think that's what is different from the works that I describe. Well, not so much. I think with Zora, she does it well, yeah. mm-hmm. um, but she does it more. But it's like, I knew that I'm coming out of a tradition in my career. If people, if you've been following my career since 2014, I started out as a personal essay writer. That was one of the only ways for women of color or young women to break into the industry. We weren't getting opportunities to do investigative reporting. We weren't getting opportunities to travel and to, and to do features. It was personal essay writing or what they call hot takes, which I, I kind of hate the term because it sort of diminishes or devalues one's ability to synthesize arguments quickly. Some people do. I can. I will just say that's one thing that I can say is a strength of mine. But it was hard because, you know, this will be my undoing. My first book is extremely personal. Mm-hmm. Watering in Strange Lands stretched me more than any other work I've done because mm-hmm. it demanded a certain type of rigor with regards to the research, with regards to the structure and how to build especially because I was going to all these different places. And there are overlapping themes with regards to land displacement and systemic violence, but they're also incredibly distinct at the same time. And how do you take all these four composite parts to make a whole? And I was worried in the beginning because I always had an insecurity that I wasn't taken seriously, Hmm. that because Uh I went through a personal essay writing, that was how I got into it, that you know, I, I was afraid that I was going to be a one-hit wonder. I was afraid oh. that people did not really take my writing ability seriously unless I had a reportage feature, a reportage edge to it. And what was interesting was that when I first started writing the first drafts of Water in Strange Lands, I'm, I disappear. There mm-hmm. is no family. There's mm-hmm. no family part of my family's not included in that. Oh, I'm not included in it really. And the only time I include myself is with these interludes where I have these meditations on certain things. And one of the reasons why I did that was because I thought I wasn't going to be taken seriously if I added more, more of a personal feel to it. And the second reason is because I'd already exposed so much about myself mm-hmm. when this will be my doing mm-hmm. that I feel like I just psychologically closed up. 
And it was actually learning more about Zorno Hurston and her push to show that you don't have to be a distant observer when you go into these communities. Also, the Pulitzer Prize winner, um, Rachel Katsiganza, who won the Pulitzer Prize. Thank you. Oh my gosh, I was going to bring her up. Yes. She won the Pulitzer Prize for her feature on Dylan Roof, and she's not talking about the trial. She's not right. just talking about the trial. She's talking about what it's like covering the trial. She's talking about a racist incident that she has with drunk white women one night. And it's like, I learned from her, I consider her to be a foremother too, that you can be subjective. And it's interesting because one of the earlier reviews of my book was by a woman who said she wished I was more objective. Mm-hmm. And it's like, how do I be more objective when I'm talking about black people in this country? How do I extract my subjectivity, my emotions, my thoughts, my beliefs from this story that is so personal, you know? Right. Well, there's also something about just travel in general, right? That like travel writing, I feel like, which this isn't really, but some of this is about coming to terms with a new space that is both familiar and unfamiliar to you. There is a kind of objectivity that has often been built into that genre that is essentially coded white. Right. Coded white and coded male. Right. What is objectivity really? Like for me, objectivity, and you know, I'm just riffing because I haven't really thought about it much, but When I think of objectivity, I think about whiteness, period. Because whiteness has this sort of ability to have influence on something, but hide your hand when someone points out Mm -hmm. that detrimental influence. Mm -hmm. When I think about objectivity, I think about how whiteness in general, it's so powerful, yet so elusive. And it's almost like this vain detachment where you have everything to do with it. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it's like, when I think about, you know, subjectivity, it's like, we're all human beings and we all know how stories are shaped, how they're framed. And when I read that review, it didn't really bother me so much because I said, well, I did what I was supposed to do. I don't understand how you can ask a black woman, a black American woman to be subjective when she's talking about black Americans. Right. How do you expect me to write that way? Oh, you just, so many things you just said just like tickled my nerd brain so much. Like so many <laughs> thoughts are jumping out. First of all, I'm so glad you brought up Rachel Kaziganza and the Dylan Roof essay, because that is not only one of my favorite essays to read and to teach, it felt so, so directly relevant to your story. Yep. And to your point of objectivity, which I don't believe in, because I think it is a white based construct of white supremacist patriarchy, and I will say that on the record, I think that like if you look at Gansa's piece, she has the most formidable reporting chops you can possibly have. Like no one can yep. challenge her facility with research for one second. And right. the passages where she describes what it was actually like to be a black woman knocking on strangers' mm-hmm. doors in the South asking questions about a white supremacist and his origins... You can't say that her experience isn't not just relevant to that, but absolutely essential to it. And I had that feeling about your book, too, as you made ethical and literary decisions to look some hard truths about your family and your identity and your ethnography and your lineage in the face. Right. I would love to talk about how that felt to you. You know, you write about the decisions you made as an author to look unflinchingly at those things. But I guess I would say... Yeah. When did you feel the most scared and when did you feel the most safe in your process of traveling to do this research? I felt the most scared when I was in Oklahoma Mm. for a couple of reasons. Like one of the reasons is that I didn't have much knowledge about the Midwest like Mm -hmm. that. The way that I thought about the Midwest was sundown towns. That's the first thing that I thought Mm -hmm. of. Which is accurate as someone who grew up in the Midwest. That is not a misconception. Right. 
I mean, but sundown towns are everywhere. But yeah, you know, you get the point. <laughs> I do. The things that I would, for those who are listening who are not familiar with my book, which I hope will be, I was doing research on freedmen. Freedmen are black people, basically, who are also a part of indigenous tribes, but they're not recognized sometimes as full citizens. And what I mean, full citizens, meaning land allotments, voting rights, housing benefits, educational assistance, medical care. And I was speaking to a woman by the name of Marilyn Van. Marilyn Van is the president of the Descendants of Freedmen Association. She's also the woman responsible for Cherokee freedmen being granted full citizenship rights in 2017. Wow. Okay. So going into it, granted, I'm a product of the public school system. I had no idea that during the Trail of Tears that we're all talking about, we were told, you know, when President Andrew Jackson forced five tribes, Cherokee, Choctaw, Chickasaw, Seminole Creek, across the Mississippi and Indian Territory, which now knows Oklahoma, had no idea that black people accompanied in those tribes on the trip. Had no idea that they were either free black people, fugitives, or enslaved by them. And after emancipation happens, like, well, what do we do with these black people? Mm-hmm. And so when I spoke to Marilyn, one of the things that she wanted me to do was she said, I want you to get a hotel room near my house mm-hmm. so I can keep tabs on you. This was the first time that you know, I had traveled to South Carolina. I traveled to Georgia. I traveled to Louisiana. This was the first time that someone said that. Then when I went there, she told me the steps that she has to take. When she goes to meetings, she never goes on Facebook to say where she's going. Mm-hmm. She mm-hmm. only does it after the fact. I met up with a woman who is a seminal freedman and you know she has been threatened to be lynched oh wow and i've talked about that in my book when she was driving me to a protest at the bureau of indian affairs in seminole county oklahoma she literally said if you were my daughter then her voice tapered off Mm. and i said what do you mean she's like if you were my daughter i'd be scared Mm. and that same day we were followed while she was trying to show me certain things and it's like i had these people risk their lives and I risked my life right. interviewing people because not only do you have to be mindful of the sundown towns, you not only have to be mindful of the Oklahoma police department, you have to be mindful of the light horsemen, which is the police force of the five civilized tribes, the tribes that I just named. So you have to be mindful of all these different territories. You're not only in America, you're in, for example, Creek reservation territory. So like mm-hmm. I met up with a multiracial Creek citizen who has been fighting for freedmen rights and all the five civilized tribes. And when I went to his house, the first thing he called me was a Wajena, which means a child of Washington, which means that I'm an American because I was on Creek reservation land. Hmm. So to have to be mindful of these hmm. different types of territories that I had no, I didn't have much knowledge on. I mean, I researched, but it's one thing to research journals about this. It's another thing to go there. And I think it was scary. It was like, I conducted myself as a teenager. I took pictures of my car. I let people know who I was meeting with. And I would try to get home before the sun set. And I would make sure I messaged someone that I got to a hotel room. Not the hotel, the hotel room. And that the door was locked. Because, Mm -hmm. again, I was talking to people whose families disappeared because of their land allotment, whose families had been murdered. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Driven off the road. And I'm coming in from New York trying to detail all this when they can't even get their local newspapers accurately covered. I mean, I mean, to this day, there's a part of me that was like, should I have had a gun just in case? Should, should I have learned wow. how to shoot? Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? And that's something that I still think about to this day. Like, well, how in the world did I get that done? Like, I knew I had a deadline. Mm-hmm. I knew that I had a publisher that was counting on me. But that was the time where I was like, 
this is serious. Right. You know what I mean? And I don't have family in mm-hmm. Oklahoma. So who, so like, how would people know? You know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I have a couple different reactions to what you were saying and particularly about the section where the woman asked you to get a hotel room right by her house, which really yeah. stood out to me in the book too. Like on one hand, mm-hmm as you're highlighting, that's so chilling, you know, and, and it's so real that these people have had family members disappeared, driven off the road, murdered, lynched, you know, like right. the, their, yeah. their concern is obviously so well-founded. But in addition to being really chilled by all of the violence that underpins that, I was also really moved by the care that these people showed you, you know, these strangers. Yeah. You know, when that woman said, if you were my daughter, like she was kind of considering you her daughter, like she was extending that kind of empathy to you. And that seemed to be a theme that recurred throughout the book as well. Right. And another thing, like with regards to that day, I remember after after the protest happened, we were there three hours. We went to go to Burger King or McDonald's, one of those fast food restaurants, before she wanted to show me other things. And there were two Seminole Freedmen men. And they got in their cars and they were following us. I also wonder why they followed us. She was like, because they want to make sure we're safe. In fact, one of them mm-hmm. actually lives in Wichita. Wichita is three hours away. And he would drive to accompany this woman. Her name is Zeta Osborne Sampson. And he would accompany her after her husband passed away. He would drive up to accompany her to meetings just to make sure that she's safe. Oh, my God. And that's the one thing I knew I had to finish this book for them. Right. I had to finish that book for these people because there was not a single person that I interviewed during my field work who did not want their real names to be published in this book. They didn't have to, you know, watch out for me. They didn't have to tell me anything. And they did. And they looked out for me. In fact, I still get messages from them asking how I'm Mm, doing. That's great. Some of them. So it's like I knew that I had a job to do, but I also just think about, I don't know, you know, people like to say that I have a way with, um, people opening up to me mm-hmm. and that's something I don't take lightly mm-hmm. you know I was talking to another friend of mine and I was like you know I'm really good at interviewing I think it's a Gemini thing you know just being a little bit self-deprecating and she was just like no it's a skill <laughs> it's a skill and you know I don't know where it comes from maybe it's my personality mm-hmm. you know I think a lot it was easy for her to trust me because like I'm a five foot tall woman mm-hmm. I have a disarming smile mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. what I mean and all I came with in a lot of these parts of the journey was by myself I put the recorder right in front of them so they saw it the only thing I, else I was carrying was my purse and my pen and my notebook mm-hmm. and they all saw it so it wasn't like I was hiding anything and even when I was writing stuff about them I let them look at it before I put it in the book mm-hmm. so yeah it's things that like, I was fully taken care of there were many parts that it could have gone left, as my mother said. Mm-hmm. And I think Oklahoma was definitely part of it. Yeah, I hear that. That strikes me as super interesting, given what you were saying earlier about your path to this book, that it sort of led through the personal essay. Your first book was, as you say, extremely personal. I think you're very aware of the kind of cost that comes with sharing mm-hmm. these right. things. Right. And here you were, you know, with all these people who were opening up to you in some way, are there things you decided to censor out or to sort of say, you know, if they knew what I knew, they wouldn't be sharing this and I'm going to take it out? Or did you really just think, look, I trust myself. I need to trust them as well. Yeah, I trust them. A lot of times that they would say things that would make me uncomfortable with regards to family history stuff, like especially for the stuff in Louisiana, right. some of the stuff they were saying like right. made me uncomfortable, but I'm also just like, let them speak. Like if, mm-hmm. if we're going to talk mm-hmm. about old history and stuff that persists in families for hundreds of years i can give you expository information and i did do that but let these people talk yeah and that's why i wanted to give them as Mm -hmm. much dialogue as possible 
and to let the people know that these are full breathing people. They're alive right now. Right. And they've been doing the work prior to me meeting them. So for me, it's like the way that I think about with personal stuff is that I get to decide what I disclose. And I think what's interesting is like, I think when you're a woman, they're not careful when they ask you questions about what you disclose, like they're projecting shame onto you. The reason why I write personal essays is to interrogate shame and to give it back to the world because that Mm -hmm. wasn't in me to begin with. And so I think it's often gendered when we talk about self-disclosure. And when it comes to men, the more salacious they are, the better. And it doesn't even care who they're implicating in the stories. But if I'm talking about myself, concerning myself, then I get to decide where the line is. Mm -hmm. I really need to figure out a technique for how to express just like full approval with my body without making noise that's going to interfere with (laughs) recording. Because Uh, everything you were just (laughs) saying, I was like full body fist pumping. (laughs) I mean, I guess as you were talking and as we've been been talking, I've been thinking about on how many different levels I consider your book to be a feminist achievement, right? Like, there is the obvious layer of you being a woman traveling alone, there is the layer of you as a woman telling your own story without shame or fear. But there's also a really compelling layer that I want to talk about that just is your writing so explicitly against binaries, right. all different kinds of binaries, you know, yeah. black and white, men and women, you know, like gender binaries, race yeah. binaries. So just because you've been so expansive in like making the ideas behind this book accessible for people who haven't had the fortune of reading it yet, could you talk a little bit about how that, we'll call it anti-binary ethos informed this work oh great like i mean the thing is and i don't know if this comes from you know me studying comparative literature in college mm. me learning Yay! different languages sorry but, <laughs> but you know they're learning different languages but it's like i'm always trying to consider the other side now granted if we're talking about fascism no i'm not considering that other side now, there's a limit yeah. there are limits but mm-hmm. i'm always trying to see nuance here you know and there was two parts of my book tour that i was really thankful for the New York Times review where the woman who wrote it after Hirsch, she called me courageous because she said I was exploring topics that were even taboo in black circles. And then I loved that review. And I, I mean, loved that, that was probably the, that that's the best review I've, I've ever gotten in my career so far. I was so happy and thankful. And then when I was in conversation with Jason Reynolds, he said that I approach literature with a hammer mm. because of what I do. And I'll take that to the grave. Yeah. But for me, it's just like, I am fine with being uncomfortable and telling somebody about it. Mm-hmm. When I wrote the Louisiana part of my book, a whole lot of things are going on. I know what it's like to be fodder for the internet. I know what it's like to have my work taken out of context, Mm -hmm. misconstrued, mangled, maimed in order for me to be humiliated. Mm. I've seen it already. And I think that part of me was that when I told you about me feeling psychologically closed, that's my first book. I think Mm -hmm. that had a lot to do with it. Mm -hmm. So when I started writing about the Louisiana part, there were so many things I didn't know. I didn't know, you know, when I grew up and I said this in other interviews, when it came to black history, it was very streamlined. Your ancestors were captured from or near the coasts of Western Africa. They were brought over via the transatlantic slave trade, slavery, emancipation, reconstruction, the Harlem Renaissance, civil rights, then Obama. Right. That's how history was taught to me. I was not told that there were free people of color prior to emancipation. I wasn't told that there were black slave owners. In fact, 
thousands of them and they weren't all in the South. I was not taught that. And to find out that not only did these, you know, types of people existed, but they existed in my own family. That complicates what I think about blackness. Because for me, the way I grew up was with regards to capital, especially during the antebellum area, white and black were diametrically opposed with regards to social, financial, libidinal economies. They're completely diametrically opposed. But that wasn't the case when I went to Louisiana. When I went to Louisiana, I spoke to a woman who was a descendant of a Creole woman or black woman who's responsible for an entire community in Cane River, Natchitoches, Louisiana. And she had relations with a French merchant. And not once did any of her descendants said rape. They never said that this master took advantage of her. And that is uncomfortable. There is no intimacy for enslaved black women. There is no such thing as pleasure for enslaved black women. There's no space to talk about survival and choice. Yeah. Everything with regards to a black woman's body during the antebellum era is rape. Rape, rape, brutality, reproduction, rape, rape, rape. Trigger warning. I'm sorry, everyone. But I'm repeating it so people understand how it was. And so... When we say these things like black people, not a monolith, another thing that I've heard in black people circles, you know, in my circles, I'm not my ancestors. Mm -hmm. You're not. But what does that mean when we say that? Mm -hmm. When we say that, we have to understand that we cannot flatten the interiorities of our ancestors and that perhaps our ancestors made choices for their survival that in the present day would be seen as grotesque, disgusting. But if it weren't for those choices, arguably we wouldn't be here. And so when I wrote about these things, I was upset. I was upset that people were going to take it out of context saying, oh, you know, Morgan is just purporting like white and black relations were good. You know, you know how people can do whatever they want if they if they're not reading something in good faith. But I said to myself, I had to keep pushing against it because I said, if I anesthetize this history, then it's counterproductive to the entire book. If I anesthetize this history, it's going to make it that much harder for the writer that comes after me to find history on herself or scholarship on other people that were doing this type of work. And so it was hard. And I wanted people to be brought to that space where it was hard for me. You know, I didn't grow up in Louisiana. I grew up in New Jersey. It was hard for me to wrestle with that. But it's like, this is a potential reality. This is what we talk about. Like, what are the choices that black women make when when they're trying to survive? And is there space to talk about it? I remember a couple months ago, I did a thread on Beyonce because Beyonce was featured in the September issue of Vogue. And as any of you know about the fashion issue, September issue of Vogue is one of the biggest, if not the biggest issue in the industry. In fact, there was a whole documentary made on the making of September Vogue. And one of the things that she wrote about was her ancestry. She said that, you know, she found out that she's a descendant of a white man and a, and a slave black woman. They fell in love and they got married. And people were pissed off. Black people I knew were pissed off about it because she's also Creole through her mother's line, whereas I'm Creole through my father's line. And people were upset because they're like, she's kind of supporting whiteness. So you know what I did one night? I said, all right, Beyonce's lineage is easy to trash. Let's just see. Let's, let's go back from her mother from Galveston, Texas, all the way back to Louisiana. And the whole thread went viral and people were upset because 
some people thought that I was saying that like these two people fell in love. And I said, no, that's not what I purported at all. What I'm trying to say is through showing pictures of her ancestors, through showing which parish they came from Louisiana, even succession rights. And remember, sometimes white men in Louisiana who had relations with black women, they gave their children land, mm -hmm. which basically showed like I'm connected to these people through blood. Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. right. And so that's what I tried to show people is that, okay, we're not going to know if Beyonce is lying or not. You know what I mean? Oftentimes records, especially through the Catholic Church and all that can get mixed up all the time. However, there was something to be said that this has passed along in her family for hundreds of years. There is a relation that happened. That's the only thing I was trying to prove was there was a relation because of the succession. And then some people were upset. They were like, you know, you're going too deep into it. I'm like, I never go too deep when it goes African-American genealogy. There's no such thing, especially mm -hmm. when archives are still being discovered to this day, especially when a lot of our ancestors could not read or write because that was a death sentence. There's no such thing for me going too far. And if I'm going too far, then maybe that's out of your range. I don't know. But that's not, you know what I mean? And I hate, and I don't want to say it like that, but it's like, this is what I do. That's why I was mm -hmm. able to make the mm -hmm. book that I was able to make because I had to question. And even if a stone was unturned, lift it up and see the mulch underneath it because there might be something right. else growing under there too. For those of our listeners who have yet to crack the book open, it's a big plea against forgetting, against mm. convenient erasure or gaps. In certain moments, I feel like your authorial voice almost sort of brims with a certain kind of, well, I don't want to say resentment, but you feel that you, this has been withheld from right. you. There's something here that you would have liked to grow up with and you didn't get to. Right. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, is that I may not be able to 100% definitively prove anything. That was not my goal. What my goal was to show are all of our grandmothers lying? Are all of our family members lying? Even in the face of textbooks, they can't all be lying. I wanted to right. show the potential realities that are out there by pulling together all these primary and secondary sources that I could while also leaving it open-ended because, again, our ancestors were human beings. Even if they were enslaved, they were human beings. And there's going to be certain degrees of their characters that we will never be able to access and for good reason because they're human yeah you know what i'm saying right. for me it was like i may not ever know but i damn sure tried my hardest to get That's somewhere right. and where i got was farther mm -hmm. than what i started so right. i consider that an achievement i consider it an achievement but if i never blessed to have children someday they're going to be able to trace back their ancestors 300 mm -hmm. years they're going to be able to call their names out even if they've never seen their face before and that as an african-american woman who was a descendant of enslaved black africans who's the descendant of free people of color who's the descendant of slave masters that's a victory for me Absolutely. that's something that's not quantifiable yeah i was thinking as you were talking i'm so on board with your mission to grant a greater dimensionality and in inner life to enslaved women and i I also see how difficult that is given the lack of documentation under the umbrella of like racism and patriarchy harm everybody. I was just thinking that the sort of negative relief of the assumption that 
rape was the only kind of sexual construct that could exist under enslavement. You know, the sort of negative relief of that is assuming that all married white women had consensual sex all the time, which I also don't think is true. It's you know, true. like marriage does not consensual sex makes. Yeah. I'm still learning to this day what consent means. Right? I'm mm-hmm. still learning vocabulary right? for that. I just still am. The thing is, is that there are two scholars. I like to shout them out because they really helped me. And I quoted them in the book when I was speaking about this. Their names are Jessica Marie Johnson and Trevor B. Lindsay. And they wrote about pleasure and enslaved black women. Yes. And the reason why I want to shout them out is because sometimes you have a thought and you're like, oh my God, I shouldn't think that because this is how I was educated. But I think about when black people were enslaved, you know, like, did they ever laugh? Did they ever smile? Did they ever have orgasms? And can I talk about that while also saying that slavery should have never happened, that white supremacy still exists? That's the problem is that when we talk about anti-binaries, the reason why I was so nervous because I didn't want to offend black people, but also I didn't want white people to hold on that. Like, see, see, it wasn't that bad. You know what I'm saying? Of course. Like, luckily that hasn't happened. I'm not going to wood, knock on my coffee table. But... I don't care. <laughs> like, I think at a certain point, I had to tell myself, you mm-hmm. have to defend your work. And, you know, every time I have an interview about this book, I think about the tears I shed. I think about how there were so many times where I thought the book was going to be canceled because I didn't think I was going to be able to pull it together. I think about the people, like I said, who opened their homes to me, who risked their lives mm. to showed me the things they showed me. And that's how I knew I had something to do. If they believed in me enough to do that, then I could finish it. So that's why, like, Mm -hmm. there's a part of me that's like, I want to hear where people are coming from. And of course I am, because I feel like when we feel these gnawing in our heart, when something makes us uncomfortable, as it was making me uncomfortable, there's a root there. And it was because of the way I was educated. It was because of what has it been taught to me. And also because, you know, I don't want it to come up as if I'm saying something completely disrespectful, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that there should be conversations for that. But I also think that we have to consider what survival could mean and how black women navigated that. Because I mean, when I think about how much devastation has been brought to black communities across the country, it's a miracle that we're still alive. It just really is. And so I think that I'm trying my hardest to like to make space, but also have to say to myself, like I did the work and I'm still doing the work and Mm -hmm. I need to also stand up for myself, Mm -hmm. you know, and to Mm -hmm. say like, this is the research that I did. That's why, like, if anyone knows me, I'm very active on Twitter. Anytime that I talk about something, I'm always citing a dissertation, a journal article, a scholar that anybody else can look up Mm -hmm. to know that I'm not just bullshitting here and that I'm not 100% maverick. There are people that came before me who I cited in the book so that they know there's always Mm -hmm. a root there. I do that purposefully. I think that's so fascinating the way you talk about about the choices and about sort of finding complexity in your ancestors, right? There are narratives about the American South, about Jim Crow, about slavery, that white America has sort of inured itself to the idea that this was bad, but that that always depends on these very recognizable subjects. And to say, well, no, this was this is a long time ago. This was a frankly incomprehensible situation that yeah. people found themselves in. And they probably made choices you will not understand, right? right? That strikes me as incredibly important there and also as central to kind of the pull of your book, the way that the past is a foreign country. You are sort of encountering right. these mm. people who the more familiar we come with them, the more you realize... I don't know much. I don't know 
what? And I think that's the thing. It's like, you know, I was watching an interview with an old 80s star. His name was Terrence Trent Darby. And it goes by Sananda Matreya now. But when he was promoting his second album, I think it was, he was in his 30s. Mm-hmm. And he was saying, you know, his first album was a smash. It came out when he was 25, which is the time that This Will Be My Doing came out too, 25. And he said, you know, once you get older, you realize that you, you think you know everything and you realize you don't know much. Mm-hmm. And I think with this book, you know, even though I'm not in my 30s yet, mm-hmm. it made me realize that as much as you know, you don't know much. There's a difference between reading and hearing. There's a difference between researching and doing field work. Mm-hmm. There's a difference when you're like really active in mm-hmm. a space, the body remembers. Mm-hmm. So even me talking about it, like I think about all the circuitous paths I took to find answers. Mm -hmm. I think about just all the drafts and just a a lot of pep talks that I needed. It was just immense. Mm. You know, so I could talk about this book for like another four hours, but because we have limited time today, I want to make sure I come back to the start of your career because one thing I'm really passionate about is making the process of starting a career as a writer as transparent as possible. And I also see so much in your work and your online presence that hews to the sacred tradition of lifting as we climb. Oh, thank you. So I just wanted to hear a little bit more about your start with personal essays. Like, let's go back to 2014. How did you start pitching? What were the first pieces you ever pitched? Like, what were what were the footholds that you found early on? Well, I would just say this. Like, I didn't expect to get my footholds in the industry by personal essays. Mm. What I thought was going to happen was that I was going to get an entry-level position at a a literary agency or a publishing house, and then maybe I'll just drop my manuscript in the mailroom and some editor Uh will see it, and then Uh I'll get my book deal. It's the dream. (laughs) Yeah, right? But I mean... I, I graduated from Princeton. I did unpaid internships, just like they t- everybody told me to. And I could mm. not get an entry-level job. And mm. it was gutting, mm-hmm. you know, to go into New York, take the train to go into New York, go for these 15-minute interviews where I always shook hands with an, an editor who was a white woman. And, you know, was hoping that at least I get a call back, wouldn't even get a call back. Mm. And I just cried and I cried. And to add insult to injury, mm-hmm. like, I was heartbroken. On top of that, graduating from number one university in, in the country, and I was heartbroken. Yeah. And so I moved back home, and my only saving grace at the time was that I got accepted into Bennington, which is a low-residency MFA in Vermont. Mm-hmm. So I got accepted into there. I was actually the youngest and the only Black person in my class. Mm-hmm. So I had a little bit of like anxiety of like, ooh, am I really that talented? You mm-hmm. know, but it was a great experience overall. Mm-hmm. But I wrote one op-ed towards the end of my senior year because there was a, a white male freshman who wrote that white privilege doesn't exist. He wrote this in our newspaper and he got hits from Fox News, of course, that made national news. Great. And I responded to him through writing an op-ed in Ebony Magazine mm-hmm. on the digital side. And when I went back home, you know, I'm, I'm in the bed trying not to be depressed. I probably was depressed. I don't know. But I was on Twitter and I was seeing all this content being circulated. And I was like, oh, people my age can write and get paid for it. Right? So I start. Nobody taught me how to pitch. Mm-hmm. I just learned through rejections. I wrote for Toast, oh. RIP the Toast. Mm-hmm. I wrote for Quartz, which is a part of Atlantic Media. That's where right. I was doing a lot of those hot takes. Mm-hmm. And I started writing personal essays over at BuzzFeed. And then it started to get more serious because I started to do like pieces for L, 
more op-eds for like the Atlantic. I wrote for the New Yorker, which is like a huge mm-hmm. career achievement for me, writing for the New Yorker. I also like interviewed people like Nikki Giovanni, Issa Rae, Claudia Rankin. I was start was doing things like that, and I was building up a portfolio. And it was through internet writing that I was able to get an entry level position in publishing. It was through internet writing that I found my agent. It was through internet mm-hmm. writing that I found the woman who would acquire this will be my undoing. Mm-hmm. It was all through the internet. Mm-hmm. And you know, when I started writing professionally, I said to myself, I may not be the best writer out there, but I'm going to work harder than the best writer out there. That's one thing that I know about me is that my work ethic is like second to none. I'm very disciplined. And here's what I'll say about the internet is that internet could be a great place. I've forged a lot of community, but I also know the internet could be a mean place. Mm -hmm. In fact, some of my writing things are not on Twitter or they're not on Twitter anymore. And I understand it. And for me, the one thing I try to stress to people is you don't have to be mean for clout. Yes. You don't. You don't have to be mean. I'm a snowflake. I'm very much like a gumdrop. I'm very, very warm. And I don't like it. And I told someone, I said, even when I was an editorial assistant, even when I was just a teacher commuting two hours a day in Brooklyn to teach first generation Chinese American kids, and I was making less than 30000 a year, I always tried to treat people kindly. Because that shit doesn't cost any money. <laughs> Anybody can do it. And I always tried to uplift other people one of the people uplifted i edited her first piece at catapult kia Mm -hmm. brown i love kia her first book was public was simon and schuster last year another person who i used to go hard for their short stories at catapult his name is brandon taylor Mm -hmm. and now guess what his first novel real life is nominated for the booker prize so it's like I look at these people and I say to myself, even when I wasn't Morgan, I wasn't a New York Times bestseller. I wasn't teaching at Columbia. I wasn't, you know, traveling to do speaking engagements. I was nice to people. And I always knew that if they needed help, they can contact me. And that's the type of legacy I want to have for as long as I'm in the industry. I want people to say, yeah, she's a damn good writer, Mm -hmm. but she's a damn good shepherd Mm -hmm. too. And that she looks out for people. And I think I also have a responsibility because now I'm in a position where I'm not afraid to say things. I'm not afraid to talk about the negatives in publishing. I'm not afraid to talk about how hard it was for me to get even a foothold in publishing when you're yeah. not even making no offense, but you're not even making 40K a year right. in one of the most expensive cities in the world. And I feel like it is my responsibility now that I'm in the room and I have the position I have to say mm. these things for those mm. who can't. Fantastic. Yeah. That's something I hold really dear too. And I think that's like a really beautiful ethical and spiritual legacy to aspire to but i also think it's just good business to be nice oh, like, i always tell people tell students that one of the best things you can do for your career in its early stages is do as many favors for other people as you can because you're gonna need one someday you know right but not only that I've been shown kindness. Yes. Roxanne Gay blurred my first book because she never even met me. She never even met me in person before She's she did famous that. famous for yeah. that kind of kindness, I think, yeah. But she didn't have to. You of know course, what I'm saying? Right. I think about Rachel Kaziganza getting on the phone with me, uplifting me. She never met me either. Mm. And it's like, I've known what it's like for people to be kind and extend themselves when they didn't have to. So why wouldn't I do that? You know what you say about with business is that People don't understand that the publishing industry is very small. And I don't say this as an admission. I'm just saying this as a fact. Absolutely. Yeah, is that yeah. like when you talk smack about someone, especially publicly, 
you know, no, your agent was probably going to ask that person for a blurb or that person is friends with an editor that you want to get placed in, which might hurt you. Like it's very small because if I know one person, I can know five other people mm-hmm. that are in other different organizations that are attached to that person, at least five, especially in for New sure. York. So for me, I tell people, it's like, you don't have to like everybody. But when you want to address your grievances, there is a way to go about it. And it isn't tone policing, it's strategy. Mm-hmm. Go to the DMs or talk to people who are really in your corner whose careers you want to emulate to figure out how to go about it. But to do a scorched earth thing all the time, yes, you might get a dopamine hit from the likes of retweets that you get, but it can have serious consequences. Yeah, I completely agree. Yeah. Was there ever another second book that you had in you that you ended up not writing? Because this does feel like, just hearing you put your philosophy like that, it feels like this is a, such a generous book. I mean, it's a, it's a dangerous book in many it's cases. Such it's such a generous, generous book. book. Yes. Did you have other other books in you that you were like, this is not the right book because it doesn't kind of work with this philosophy? Or was this always going to be the one? What, this book, Water Strange Lands? Yeah. I mean, well, honestly, this book, it was going to be, the scope was much smaller. When I sold it, Um, the inspiration for it came from Get Out, actually. It came from Jordan Peele's Hmm. movie because the climax, if anyone's familiar with it, is when the black male protagonist has his hands wrapped around the white protagonist, female protagonist's throat. And she's been trying to kill him for half the movie. And the police car shows up. And everybody in the movie theater, I'm in Magic Johnson Theater in Harlem, everyone just collectively gasps. Oh, yeah. And that was astounding mm. for me because we all had the same response. And I'm not a native Harlemite. There may be some people in there who are not native either. And yet we all understand the threat of land displacement, the threat of systemic violence. And I was really interested in that intergenerational fear and trauma. But then when I spoke to two scholars, mm-hmm. they told me uh, their names are uh, Carrie Greenidge and uh, Kendra Field. They're based in Massachusetts. They were like, oh, this sounds like a migratory story. Then that's where the, the real scope came in. Interesting. Mm. Is Carrie Greenidge related to Caitlin Greenidge? Yes. The no, famous Greenidge yeah. sister. Yeah. <laughs> right Can on. I ask uh, just uh, kind of off topic, but it's about travel. I've been binging Lovecraft Country and I just feel like that's sort of an experience of like place and migration. And Right. And I did a thread on that. I did a thread. I said, oh, how I many see that yet. y'all? So I made a thread that still has legs, surprisingly. I'm like, how many of y'all black people have you suspected or have been through a sundown town? Because mm-hmm. the first episode deals with sundown town. Right. I got thousands wow. of responses about that. In fact, I even made a map from the responses that black people made. I made a map. So I said, you know what? Sometimes the people don't got time to be looking at all this. Let me just show you visually of like where this all is. And people saw it wasn't on the South. If you look at the West Coast, mm-hmm. California and Oregon, all them, just many red dots. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I like to do things like that. I like, especially in the pandemic, I like to ask black people questions that forge community. And that's been very helpful for me. And that's just something that I'm just like to do. The Feminist Present is co-hosted by Adrian Dobb and Laura Good. It is produced by Laura Good and edited by Megan Kalfas and Isabella Tilly. All our original music is by Julie Herndon. We are eternally grateful for funding support from the Institute Named for a Woman in a building named for a woman that none of us have seen recently, the Michelle R. Clayman Institute for Gender Research at Stanford University. And we are especially grateful to our feminist colleagues there, Cynthia Newberry, Allison Dahl-Crossley, Natalie P. Mason, Jennifer Portillo, Wendy Skidmore, Shivani Mehta, and Sarah Mersney.
The Feminist Present is also co-sponsored by The Changing Human Experience, producing deep ideas for a better world by supporting Stanford research in the humanities and social sciences. Follow us on Instagram or Twitter. We're at Feminist Present on both platforms. And if you want to chat feminism, Miss Rona, or anything else, go ahead and write us an email at feministpresent at gmail.com. We'd appreciate it so much if you'd leave us a review, preferably five stars, on iTunes or another platform to help other folks join our discussion. Thank you for tuning in and see you next time. Pop. Squish. No, six is next. Shit. Dude. Shit, sorry. Okay. Pop, six, squish, yeah, uh, sorry. scissor, you're right. lip shakes. You're right. You're right. <laughs> God. This, you, do, uh, you go again. You're not, you're not getting in. You can't come back to the Castro after that. Mm-hmm.